My guest today is Jamar Tisby. He is author of The Color of Compromise. More recently, How to Fight Racism. He's author of the uh, introduction to a new edition of The Coming Race Wars by Bill Parnell out with InterVarsity Press. Uh, Jamar, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I am thrilled to actually get to talk to you because thus far, our only interaction, I think, has been on social media. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's been oh, super ahead. fun to follow your account. And you, you're, you're always saying the things that I'm thinking. So I enjoy it. <laughs> I, I get that a lot. I'm not sure what to make of that. Like, <laughs> I just, yeah, like maybe, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I don't know I'll, if I'll you're a mind it. reader or you're just bolder than the rest of us. So you're, you're saying the, the, the parts out loud that, that others fear to tread. <laughs> okay yeah i'll take that i'll, t- I'll, I'll take that <laughs> yeah um well part, so part of it is my institutional affiliation which which has uh i grew up in white evangelical spaces uh predominantly specifically in the southern baptist convention and although i have friends who are still you know around those around those institutions, um, or I perhaps I should say because I still have friends that are around those institutions, um, I, I feel uh, maybe an obligation to, to speak into uh, certain areas where the folks I know who are there aren't necessarily at liberty to say quite so much um, mm-hmm. and since I'm at a, a Catholic institution. And one thing we have in common is that we both spent time at Notre Dame Yes. Um, yeah, maybe maybe we could jump off. Uh, that that could be a good starting point. The the social tradition there. What do you what do you? Yes, think? let's jump off there. And I got lots to say about the SBC too, and some historic connections <laughs> and ties. So I'm sure it'll be an interesting conversation. I am indebted to Catholic education. First of all, I spent most of my educational journey in Catholic school. So I went K through eight to a Catholic school. Uh, sort of a sort of a, a blue collar working class town, and uh, I, uh, there was just a lot of uh, Latinos and Latinas, black kids, white kids. It was very racially mixed. Um, I was never Catholic though. I literally went there because our next door neighbor was the principal, and so we got <laughs> my mom got to know her, and it's like, oh, this is a good school. So let's 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 do it. And so that was my early experience. And, and interestingly enough, there was a lot of uh, some of my early racial experiences connected to religion were, were through that Catholic school. I remember going to mass every week and then at the part of the mass where they, they give the Eucharist, all of the, the white and the Latinx kids would go up and then all the black kids would stay seated and not receive the Eucharist. And at that age, you know, this is maybe middle school or so. The only difference I noticed was skin color. Well, it turned out, <laughs> you know, all the kids going up were Catholic and had been confirmed and, and, and were receiving the sacrament and uh, all the black kids were Protestant. So hmm. that's just the way it worked out. But it was just this, this really clear memory I have that every week, you know, it would just be me and this handful of black kids who stayed seated in the pews. And then I went to public high school again, a lot of that because of proximity. My mom was a teacher at, at the high school I attended. I never had her as a teacher, but she was there. And then um, 
went back to Catholic school for undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, where I, um, I was an American studies major and a theology minor. And it's very interesting there, two really significant things happened um, to me in terms of my journey. One is that in, in sort of ironic fashion, I got exposed to something called reformed theology out of the <laughs> Protestant Reformation in this Catholic school while I was at this Catholic school. And the first reformed church I went to was, was while I was an undergrad there. Um, the other significant thing that happened at Notre Dame was getting exposed to the Catholic social tradition. And I distinctly remember, and this, the significance of this only hit me years and years later, but I distinctly remember the Center for Social Concerns on campus. Um, and Notre Dame boasts one of the highest sort of volunteer rates of students in the country. I was one of those students who, who did some of these volunteer service opportunities through the Center for Social Concerns. And what was so important about it, it was that this, it was this, this melding of, of Jesus and justice and the idea that to be Christian was to pursue justice, to per pursue Jesus was to pursue justice. And what stood out to me years and years later is that many of the battles I'm facing with Christians, evangelicals in particular, lots of them in the SBC, is folks saying that justice and racial justice in particular is a distraction from the gospel, is not central to what it means to be a Christian. They'll say all the right things about people being equal, but when it comes to actually doing something about it, or even just speaking forthrightly about it, there's one of the frequent sort of deflections is that, well, this isn't the gospel, this isn't evangelistic, this isn't core to who we are. Um, but that was a very, very much a different message from the one I received in uh, these Catholic schools. Yeah, I, my, my sense some time ago was that the sort of allergy to social justice had to do with concerns about, um, well, I guess it, they refer to it as the social gospel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's this totally different thing. Um, and, and I've come to see it, I think, more as a kind of tactic. I mean, a lot of the arguments mm. are difficult to take in good faith. But the the moment you talk about actually uh, living out, you know, pra like practically um, sacrificing your own interests, either personally or institutionally, for the sake of rectifying injustice, you are, well, you're a Marxist, you're, this is social mm -hmm. gospel, just preach the gospel, et cetera, et cetera, right? A hundred percent. And don't you're, get me wrong, there are folks within Catholicism who will utilize the same tactics. Um, but I think what's different is that there's actually this body of work um, in the Catholic social tradition, as well as institutions attached to it, um, that are that that have been and are about justice work in ways that, you know, to put it generously, are, are at least harder to find within U.S. evangelicalism. Well, I think in the Catholic Church, the folks who push against uh, Catholic social teaching are that well, they're sort of swimming against the current. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in uh, conservative evangelicalism. The opposite is true. 
that that seems accurate to me for sure. Yeah, there there in 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 Catholicism, you're sort of going against your tradition, whether encyclicals or institutions or history, and in evangelicalism, particularly in the U.S. context, well, you know deflecting from these issues, specifically of racial justice, is sort of part and parcel of the mainstream, unfortunately. Right. Right. And I mean, just to, to get right down to it, right? The, I mean, the SBC mm-hmm. uh, was sort of, yeah, I wonder if you might talk about, so, so the SBC was, you know, founded, I mean, there were already Baptists around, right? Um, and what was different about the SBC was that 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 was those were the Baptists who decided that they were going to use theology to justify enslaving other human beings. And um, I wonder if you might say something about how that um, worked its way into the kind of uh, the DNA of the theology. This is such an important point because there are things that are happening right now as we record this in the SBC that I think connect directly to its founding. And so the, the SBC's annual meeting is coming up and there's this really important election of the next president, which is in a lot of senses, a, a largely symbolic role, but, but even in its sort of symbolic role, who gets elected as the next president of the SBC is going to be very telling. And basically, you know, the front runners are somebody who's far right and somebody who's further right. <laughs> and so <laughs> um, it's going to be, and, and the reason why for, for folks who, who, who may not be as familiar, the reason why the SBC comes up so often in conversation is because it's the largest Protestant denomination in the country. And so it just, it has a lot of clout, has a lot of money has a lot of people, has a lot of churches. And so, um, and it also in, in so many ways represents U.S. evangelicalism, even in all its sort of diversity in terms of the ideological spectrum, but especially in terms of the, the sort of battles that are playing out publicly. Now, I mentioned, um, you know, far right and further right and, and how some of this stuff connects to the founding. One of the, I think there are a couple of important things. So I write about this um, at length in The Color of Compromise, my first book, which is about, is, is a, it's a historical survey of the U.S. church's complicity in racism. And of course, one of the critical aspects is going to be the founding, really the splitting of three major denominations, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians. So to, to, to speak about Southern Baptists, a couple of important things. Number one is the timing. They split in 1845 which is not only 15 years before the Civil War, it's also five years before the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which was one of the major pieces of policy that crystallized um, these opposing sides, pro-slavery and anti-slavery. And and by the way, anti-slavery is not to say that people were sort of like these racial egalitarians. It it simply meant um, they were against the the economic institution of slavery, right? Um, right. So, so that, that this is all playing out in the church before it hits politics, the military, other, these other spheres, right? I think the same is true today. I'm always keen to connect the past to the present, I hope in responsible ways, but I think, I think we can venture to say that some of the stuff that we're seeing right now, as far as like 
debates and division over critical race theory that have now cropped up in the political realm, in the mainstream and current events, that stuff is happening within churches and denominations like the SBC literally years before it pops up on you know, the national scene and, and, and people's radar who are beyond this. Same thing's happening in the 19th century with slavery. And then um, the other aspect that's important is in addition to the timing is actually the exact nature of the split. So in general, we talk about you know, the SBC uh, was formed to preserve slavery. But I also think it's important to, to talk specifically about the circumstances, right? And, and we can go into the, to the, to the names and dates and whatnot, but in broad strokes, they split over the question of whether a Southern Baptist missionary mm. could be a church member in good standing and own slaves. And I just think that is incredibly powerful symbolism because here you have this person commissioned by his church and his denomination as a missionary charged to go preach the good news, probably overseas, probably to black or brown people. Meanwhile, at home in the United States, he is permitted to enslave the very people he's charged to share the gospel with in a foreign country. Mm. And that sort of confluence of evangelism and missions and pro-slavery theology is no coincidence. And we are seeing that dynamic play out on up to the present day. Mm. I, I I wonder uh, what you think about this idea that the, that the, this is something I've been thinking a lot about uh, lately, trying to trying to f- sort of uh, formulate uh, and and neatly encapsulate uh, the division. And and I I think perhaps the division that that runs clear back to 1845, um, and and before and in other denominations and so on. I mean, you've got one way of thinking that sees certain kinds of hierarchy as an expression of human iniquity. Mm. And then there's, and then there's another way of an opposing way of looking at the, these hierarchies and sees in these hierarchies, an expression of God's design. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. And uh, I was having a discussion with somebody the other day about how, in the contemporary discourse, if you look at evangelicalism in particular, you're seeing two major fallouts. Um, one is around race and the other is around sexism. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I think both of them have to do with theories of hierarchy. So mm-hmm. there is a... A, a, an understated, nonetheless real and presumed hierarchy of races. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's, what's, what's funny about that is that the, the sort of cultural discourse has changed enough that to, to, to say that, for someone to say that outright, that they believe in a sort of racial hierarchy would be bad form, right? Not that there aren't right. people who still do it, but um, 
nobody's going to come right out and say that it'll just come through in subtle ways. For instance, oh man, I could get deep in the weeds here, but um, well, I don't know if we I, want to jump to this right now, but Russell Moore former was, was the head of the ethics and religious liberties commission, sort of the public policy and ethics arm of the Southern Baptist convention, a very public role based in DC lobbying for specific policies, all of that stuff. He came under fire because he was a never Trumper and he also wanted to hold churches accountable for allegations of sexual abuse, which had been covered up pretty systematically, pretty clearly, right? So again, you have both these sort of racial and, 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 the, and the sexism things linked together. There was a letter, 4,000 word letter that Russell Moore wrote to his board of trustees about the attacks that, that were coming his way for his stances. And he related a, a, a portion of a conversation he had with one of these SBC far right wingers who was criticizing him. And what this person brought up was, quote, he was concerned about this hiring of, quote, this, that black girl by which he meant. And, and then when Russell Moore said, what are you talking about? What are your concerns? He was like, well, I just want to make sure she's not an egalitarian. Mm-hmm. So right there is the illustration. You have race, sexism, theology, right? That's so right. you have this racial hierarchy here. There, there was actually no need to mention her race at all. Um, you have sexism here because she's a woman. And then he doesn't call her a woman. He said that girl, right? I actually said that black girl, right? And then he, and then it's a question of theology. Is she egalitarian or complementarian? Does she adhere to the hierarchy we promulgate? Or is she, <laughs> you know, one of these quote unquote liberal leftist Marxist people who thinks, you know, men and women have the same roles or can have the same roles? So there you go. <laughs> and, and, so, and so not only is there no contradiction in being a missionary and enslaving human beings. Um, But in fact, that uh, institution of slavery is just an expression of the social hierarchy that you see as a part of the theology that you are exporting through missions. Exactly. Exactly. Isn't it? It's scary when you start peeling back the layers. Yeah. And and another. Oh, go ahead. Now you know how deep this goes, right? Like it's not, it's not a question of some sort of cosmetic change, like adding more black people <laughs> on your church staff or in the pews right. or, you know, having a women's conference. It goes way deeper than it's, it's, it's issues of power. It's issue of belief and theology as well as experience. So anyway, yeah, yeah you, I think you're just, you're honing in with that hierarchy piece. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and I, I think I started to, so I've only been on Twitter since 2018. Well, really 2019 was when I actually started, you know, I started out just sort of watching. (laughs) Smart. Yes. Twitter (laughs) has its own set of rules that, that, that you want to, you want to try to learn before you wade in too fast. That's right. That's right. Um, And when I, first saw that you know there are these 
folks who are uh, constantly talking about authority and submission, and they've even tried to import it into the, the doctrine of the Trinity in really mm. alarming ways. And at first I just, I, and they're the same folks who say that justice is somehow antithetic to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And at first I just was sort of like, who are these clowns? Like, what, what is this about? But what, what, once I started taking them seriously, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say not, you know, not, uh, not in the sense that um, there's any substance to the arguments, but in the sense that uh, these people actually mean what they're saying. And have influence, yeah. Oh, oh, oh that, well, that's why I started paying attention to it, uh, because they do have influence. And, and it is alarming. Another, I, I, another way that this comes out is in the denial of institutional racism, mm. right? Um, because yeah, they're not going to come out and say that there's a sort of divinely ordained hierarchy, but when you look at things like disparities in wealth and you say, well, there's no sort of institutional, uh, injustice at work here. Well, what do you think explains these, these disparities in wealth? It couldn't possibly be, you know, the federal housing administration's, um, uh, policies and the fact that the way Americans accumulate and transfer wealth from one generation to the next is through home equity. That couldn't possibly be the explanation, right? Um, uh, so what do you think the explanation is? And it's this, it's barely an implicit, I mean, it's barely implicit, but it's there. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll, say, I'll say two things. One, y- y- your Twitter is, 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 fun and important to follow because you're drawing on, I believe, your background and training as an academic philosopher to, to, to actually think logically <laughs> about <laughs> these issues. And, and the, the, the Twitter threads of yours that I found most helpful are the ones where you're either sort of giving us a, a very approachable, digestible example of something, illustration, or you're sort of running through these cogent logical arguments. And so I actually, I said earlier, like you're, you're saying all the things that I'm thinking is it's, it's less that than you're able to put into a logical flow that which I know sort of instinctually or experientially. But you're able to unpack it, and it's like if then 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 this, and if that then that, and it's really really powerful. Um, so I'll say that, and and you've you've got I think I was just I was just looking back. You got like almost twelve thousand followers on Twitter, and you've only been on like a year and a half. Like that's impressive. It took me years and years and years, years and years and years to get up up to those numbers. So you're doing something right, at least in the Twitter sphere. Um, but to your point, the other tricky part about these folks who deny, say, institutional racism is that even, even if, which is not common, but even if they'll acknowledge institutional racism, they'll acknowledge it in the past, but not the present. Right. So they'll say, okay, yeah, the FHA did that, but then you had the Fair Housing Act, if they know of it, you know? Right. And then- right they'll say, so, so what does that have to do with 2021, you know, or they'll point to, they'll, I, I can't believe people actually do this because it's like comical, but they'll point to like Barack Obama or Oprah <laughs> or LeBron James 
and be like, there are rich black people. So clearly America isn't racist. Like literally we'll have that argument. So, so that's one of the frustrating things, particularly for me as a historian, is the folks who will, to some extent, acknowledge the problems of racism in the past, but will not acknowledge the legacy of racism in the present. And these are people who claim to take scripture seriously, right? <laughs> and, you, and you look at the prophets and, and they are, um, you know, they say, hey, I got a message from God, right? God told me to tell you. Uh, that, you know, this, this, and this form of oppression, so much of the Hebrew scripture didn't make a whole lot of sense to me until I realized the role that justice played mm. in, uh, in the words of the prophets and, and for that matter in the law. And one of the things that the prophets uh, condemn most heavily is oppression that takes the form of uh, depriving people of the opportunity to own real property. I mean, it's such a visceral thing, right? I mean, we're talking mm. about, we're talking about millennia ago and not much has changed in this regard. The, the, for most people, the most valuable thing that they have and the way that they are going to uh, transfer uh, wealth to their children and their grandchildren is through real estate. Mm. It's right there, right? In Jeremiah and Micah. <laughs> it is right there. And it reminds me, you know, it's speaking in, in almost two broader strokes, but I think it can be helpful for folks. As we think about the black church tradition in the US and white church traditions, one of the big differences is the sort of starting point of theology in many white Christian traditions is the New Testament, the resurrection, Paul's epistles, sort of, you know, the, the, the triumphant aspects of Christianity, which are all real, true and valid, right? But, but mm -hmm. that then sort of lends to an underemphasis on the Old Testament in general, let alone those specific aspects of justice that you named. Whereas in the black church tradition, a lot of times the starting point is in the old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus, which is about mm -hmm. the literal liberation of enslaved people. So the resonances there are, are very clear, undeniable, right? But then sort of growing out of that, all of these ideas of justice and power and oppression and property and wealth and all of those kinds of things, which you see as much more of an emphasis, particularly in sort of social movements for racial justice that are articulated in and through the black church in ways that they haven't been uh, by and large in most white Christian traditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that um, sort of uh, really anemic approach to like the, the Exodus narrative in particular, I mean, I've even seen it to the point where it's like this, you know, the really the significance of this narrative as, it, as if God would enslave uh, a whole group of people for hundreds of years, for just for this purpose, right? Like that the real significance of it is that it somehow presents uh, uh, foreshadowing, right? Mm. For what comes in the New Testament. 
Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, that, you know, it might be true that, that there's a kind of uh, foreshadowing there. Fair enough. But, I, you know, perhaps part of the reason that evangelicals in predominantly white spaces don't want to dwell in the Exodus narrative is because if we really thought about it, we would have to admit that our place in that narrative is among the Egyptians. It is not among the Israelites. We are not the protagonists of that story. You, you, you tweet that out and you're going to have a real interesting couple of days, (laughs) (laughs) but I think you're absolutely right. So, so one of the, one of the things that we got to do, so I think there are a couple of things as Christians, we want to sort of tackle these problems of, you know, part of it's an anemic sort of evangelical theology when it comes to justice, right? And one of the things we got to do is tackle the issue of power. Like there's not enough dialogue or theologizing around power, its uses, its abuses, particularly if you think, you know, in sort of embodied terms of, you know, denominations or churches, when it comes to the abuse of um, power in terms of of racism and the abuse of power in terms of sexism, you could certainly add some sort of um, classism or, or material wealth kind of aspects to it as well. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing we need to tackle is I think we really need a robust doctrine of the image of God for the 21st century, where, as I understand it, the United States is the most multi-ethnic country uh, in a lot of ways. And so we're, we're, we're coming into contact with more people and more different people than most people in the history of the world ever have. And so, of course, we're going to need a deep, rich understanding of what it means to be human and how to interact with people who are so different. And of course, this has implications not just for race and ethnicity, but for gender and sexuality and for wealth and all kinds of different sort of social and cultural divisions that are causing uh, such friction right now when if we had a better theology and discipleship around these things, it might be cause for curiosity, even celebration. Yeah, there's so much there. I mean, and one thing that I see operating is just the fear of losing power. It's just the fear is palpable, right? Like you can't read this author or that author. I remember, so I went, I, I did my undergrad at Chapel Hill and study, and I studied philosophy. I ran into a, um, a guy who was a pastor at a church that my family had attended when I was in uh, high school. And um, he said, you know, what, this is one of these, uh, yeah, yeah. So he said, you know, what are you up to? I said, you know, I'm going to Chapel Hill. And, oh, what are you studying? Philosophy. And he looked at me like I shot his dog. Wow. Right. Um, like I was just dead to him at that point. Um, and I just, I, I mean, I just sort of, you know, shrugged it off because I was, you know, I, I just, I, that, that wasn't the only time I got that reaction. I just remember thinking like, what is my faith worth at all? Mm. If, I, if I can't go study philosophy, at a state university and talk to some atheists and read some books like what is it what am i what what am i saving myself from if my faith can't even withstand that right and there's is just so much so fragile fear? Mm-hmm. there's so much fear i i 100 agree i remember i mean 
I went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. It's about as conservative a place as you can get, both theologically and socially and politically. But it was always my understanding that you went to seminary, you got this really extensive education in theology so that you could actually interact with other people and belief systems that were different. Whereas in practice, so many people seem to dive in, uh, whether formally or on their own, to theology and Bible study and reading books. And it doesn't lend to more sort of interaction beyond their own circle. It actually leads them to turn in on themselves more and become more insular for some sort of fear that, that their faith or their beliefs are going to be corrupted, which I think, I mean, just feels completely backwards to me. The other aspects I wanted to mention are fear is, is, is a huge one and fear of loss of power. And then that power part, I think, goes back to hierarchy because if we're, quote unquote, we're not in control, then, quote unquote, they are in control. And that's mm -hmm. what's going to lead to bad things. The other aspect I've been thinking about more deeply is, is the pride, the arrogance. So when it comes to one's own belief system, and really it's not just theology or belief, right? It's practice. It's your social networks. It's how you've been enculturated, right? Um, but when it comes to your way of doing things, it's the right way. But mm -hmm. them, which would be black people, people of color, women, their way is wrong. Mm -hmm. not, be not on its own merits, not on the basis of the beliefs or the ideas themselves, but because of who it comes from, mm -hmm. right? That black girl, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Or the example I always use when I was in seminary, they never talked about James Cone or liberation theology unless it was to say, here's what not to do. Here's how you get it wrong. There was never anything about the sort of context that, that led to um, the academic uh, uh, formulation of, of Black liberation theology. It was never about what can we learn. It was about how this theology is wrong. And then uh, the centering of sort of European and white theology. So again, you know, in seminary especially, but, but even more broadly, all theology is just theology until it's black theology or Latin American theology or Palestinian theology, right? Whenever it's not European or white, it has to have an adjective. And that's a further sort of just kind of verbal sign and symbol of how white theology gets put in the center or on the top of a hierarchy and that other ways of thinking, not because of the thoughts themselves per se, but because of who they're coming from, get marginalized. Yeah. Yeah, and the giveaway in my mind is that they're arguing for, look, I mean, I, I take it neither of us is an anarchist, right? We're not saying that there should be like no hierarchy in any context or, or right. whatever, right? Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the giveaway is that they're arguing uh, for a hierarchy that's divinely uh, ordained 
And that hierarchy is one in which they themselves retain power. That's right. And, and that is anti-Christian. And, and, and look, I mean, like as far as, yeah, I mean, the, the caricatures of liberation theology, whether it's in the uh, context of the tradition of the black church or in the context of uh, Latin America, um, the caricatures are, I mean, like these guys have not, I just, when they say, you know, that, that these people are Christian, I'm like, have you actually read like Gustavo Gutierrez? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's no way you come away from his work thinking like that guy's not a Christian. Right? <laughs> uh, now, now was some of the rhetoric appropriated by certain political revolutionaries who happen to be Marxist, uh, who didn't ultimately have any interest in the theology? Sure. Sure. But that's not liberation. Yeah, that's something different. Right. Right. Um, and and look, I mean, the cross to, to think when I think of, uh, you know, James Cone, like the cross is a Roman symbol of law and order, mm. not not justice, but domination through terror. Mm. Uh, not un, not not unlike um, not unlike lynching in the in the Jim Crow cell. That's right. And and um, you're just going to say like, no, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to tap into the experience of this group of people who who have something to say that is so much closer to the context of all of these things I claim to believe. <laughs> it just strikes me as bizarre. It, it, it really does. And I think for your listeners who are into this, like a leading edge of the theologizing and the discipling that needs to happen is to get into the sort of psychosocial needs and desires of folks who are so invested in ideas that are clearly antithetical to the gospel and yet would position themselves as sort of the champions and the protectors of the gospel in its purity. Um, there's something deep going on there. So, so if we look to the Bible, you know, we're not dealing with just flesh and blood. We're dealing with powers and principalities, right? So there's, there's, there's spiritual battles going on. Um, but I also think there are, are sort of some psychological and, and social uh, needs that, that folks feel are being met by adhering to these ideas. And if we can sort of get to those ideas and get behind the motivations of some folks who are clinging so tightly to it, then then maybe we can maybe we can start to to communicate in a way that they'll hear. Now, I don't want to overemphasize that because I actually don't spend a whole lot of time trying to convince and persuade people who are just flat out racist is is, is how I would put it. Um, right. But I I do think there's there's a worthy endeavor to try to figure out. Um, what's going on at a deeper level in a tweet or a post or a reshare and seeing if we can find more effective ways to communicate. And this is especially true for white folks because these folks are in your families. They're your coworkers. They're your pastors. They're, they're in your churches, right? In, in, in ways that for black people and other people of color, it's, it's, it's you know, when we get together at Thanksgiving, I, I, I just, it's always so interesting to me that every year around Thanksgiving, there are all these articles that come out um, 
about how to how to how to talk about politics around when your family gets together right, right? because they're anticipating just this this huge division um between folks in the family you might be christian or or, or a secular outlet in 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 black families i mean you always have that one uncle or whatever um but by and large there's not a whole lot of debate and disagreement on you know which political party which presidential candidate or you know, what kind of Christian tradition, I don't want to minimize the differences, but it's not like this, you know, at least in my experience, this hand wringing about how are we going to get along, you know? Right. And so that's why I think it's, it's, it's particularly incumbent on white folks to figure out, okay, what's behind this, this sort of clinging to, to really retrograde ideas um, right. about race and, and justice and, and are there effective ways to communicate? Yeah. I think intergenerally, there's a huge intergenerational dynamic uh, in uh, predominantly um, white evangelical spaces uh, because um, they're sort of uh, taking a kind of high view of scripture is that like that's a thing theologically. I have a high view of scripture, um, <laughs> but but then kind of the uh, so just speaking of the SBC, because that's, you know, my, the context I came out of, right, that there's this whole notion of the conservative resurgence uh, from the 1970s through the 1990s. Uh, and the rallying cry of that was inerrancy, this very, you know, um, uh, uh, high, high view of scripture. Um, and then there was this other thread uh, which was sort of sort of left unspoken or talked about in coded language that was cultural and political conservatism. Mm -hmm. And I think folks in my generation, I mean, at least in, in the, the, I mean, you know, there's some uh, selection bias here, no doubt, because I'm talking about my friends, the people I talk to, right? Like I actually took the, the theology bit seriously, mm -hmm. right? And that led me away from the cultural and political <laughs> conservatism, like actually taking the Bible seriously. Look at that. Yeah. Um, and then there were the folks who were sort of, uh, you know, adults through that process. They went from being young adults to, you know, older now. And they didn't necessarily attend to the fact that there was more going on there than just theology. Uh, and I think they imported some of the, right. you know, a lot of the cultural and political conservatism just yes. sort of without, without really thinking about it, maybe. So that's a huge, that's a huge factor I've noticed as well, is that so often uh, these people with, 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 with backwards and unhelpful ideas about racial justice think they're quote unquote, just doing theology. You know, they're just reading the Bible, right? As if they're not coming from a context, as if they're not coming with certain questions, certain uh, priorities to the text, right? And it may not be wrong, right? But, but, but it's, it's to say that those aren't the only questions or priorities. And right. will you listen to people who are differently located socially and culturally and historically and, and the questions and priorities they're asking of the text, right? Like, so, so that's one thing is that a factor in this whole conversation is that so many people think 
they are doing a straight reading of the Bible and everyone else is importing their own experiences or selective perspectives. Right. And somehow, you know, this other group is left out of that and is doing real theology, um, right. which is frightening. And then how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you show someone that's not the case, right? Because their defense almost automatically is, well, you're just doing like a standpoint epistemology or, you know, you're, you're just um, importing, you're, you're doing eisegesis, not exegesis. Right. Yeah, it's, right. whew, it's a lot, I man. Was- I was told that I was told I was once told that I was doing eisegesis by a guy who thought that Bathsheba was immodest for bathing on the roof. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, I took a, I took a, I, I, yeah, I. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when you, when you picked your jaw up off the floor, I'd be very curious to what you say to that. Yeah. Um, so uh, an, another point I wanted to mention was, I bring this up again in the color of compromise in the later chapters as we're getting closer to the present day. But, but you know, the, the, the 1970s, early 80s, when, when, when there really began to be this overt melding between white evangelicalism and the modern Republican Party, boy, that's done a number on a couple of generations now. And uh, uh, I mean, it, there are there are just so many really sincere, well-meaning Christians who cannot conceive of politics that is not Republican mm-hmm. because they equate Republican politics with biblical fidelity, mm-hmm. particularly on the issue of abortion. Right. But mm-hmm. but all kinds of issues, whether even fiscal issues. Right. Um, right. I, I can't, I, I, I think it was Falwell, it, it, one of those guys, um, maybe Robertson, but gave a biblical exegesis for why capitalism is the Christian way. Oh, you know, I'm sure just, all of them at some point did that. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's certainly not uncommon, right? But that's where you get all these, these cries of, of socialism and why they to just have this vitriol for, for people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? And then they label them with the socialism Marxist label, again, not because they know much about these actual economic philosophies, <laughs> right. but because they've been taught that the only Christian way is capitalism and anybody who critiques capitalism is, is, not, is, is not only un-American, right? So there's these nationalistic ideas there, but is also somehow unchristian. That's right. Which is That's so right. is so pernicious. But then to your point before, there is a, a bit of a generational divide. I say that advisedly because, you know, I've taught classes at the University of Mississippi and there are 18, 19, 20 year olds who have all these same retrograde ideas about race. Um, so it's somehow getting perpetuated and uh, multiplied uh, down the generations. But I do think there is a certain extent to which, you know, uh, millennials in particular, that generation, are looking back at this sort of culture wars Christianity they inherited, and then looking at the events of the last, oh, five to seven years at least, 
around Black Lives Matter, the, 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 the Trump presidency, the sort of social and cultural divides more generally. And they're saying there's something not right. But they're stuck in this spot where that's what they grew up with. That's kind of all they knew. And so they're in this phase and this season right now of, of, of sort of things falling apart for them in terms of their nice, neat sort of theological, political, social world and figuring out how to put the pieces back together in a way that seems um, more just and authentic, but not, they're not there yet. <laughs> right, right. They're having trouble getting away from this idea that the role of Christians in a political community is to act as a sort of special interest group. Mm. And like there's, you know, in the last uh, previous administration, there's this habit of saying the quiet part out loud. And there was often talk of doing stuff for Christians. And I, I just, every time I, heard, I was like, what does that even mean? Mm. What does that even mean? Uh, uh, no Christian shouldn't be uh, voting for somebody who's going to do stuff for Christians. We should be voting for justice. Now, mm. it may be the case that if, you know, this isn't true of white evangelicals living in the present day United States, right? Uh, but if it were the case that, um, um, you know, one were suffering some injustice, then it may be that voting in, say, your economic interests happen to align with voting in the interest of justice. Say, in the if you're a Black person living in the civil rights era, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the point is not that it's in your interest. The point is that it's justice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? My, my, my. <laughs> yeah. That's a radical idea for a lot of people. Um, but it's so yeah. critical. It's so crucial. And, and, and what pains me right now and frankly scares me is the attack on democracy we're seeing in all kinds of ways, particularly with um, bills being passed into law that suppress the vote. Mm that make it more difficult to vote and not easier. This is a clear and present danger. And we are, we are way past time to be, to be moving with a sense of urgency. I mean, we're gonna have the 2022 midterms here in no time, but we've already got really haphazard census data, right? That, that has redrawn di districts, um, given more power for gerrymandering, uh, uh, changed the number of representatives from, from states that are uh, further right-leaning and, and, and whatnot. And, and that'll be here in no time. And then people will finally sort of start to get the picture in the lead up to the 2024 presidential election, but there are going to be two things that are happening. Number one, um, Republican-led legislatures are making it harder for um, not just people to vote, certain people to vote, poor people mm -hmm. um, and people of color in particular. And if they lose a few white voters, that's okay. Like that's always been the case. You can go back to poll taxes. Poor white people couldn't pay poll taxes either, but that was a minuscule thing, um, a minuscule loss in a sense compared to the gain of enfranchising or disenfranchising more black people, right? So that's, that's always gonna be part of it. Um, and, and by the way, they're not gonna use explicit racial language. They, they, right. they, they know they'll get sued. So right. they, they use coded language and, and, and it's things like in Texas where you can use a, a, a gun ID, but not 
a school ID to vote, right? Yeah. And who's going to have more gun licenses in Texas? Um, who's that going to affect or, or, or give an advantage to? So that's one aspect. They're going to make it harder for certain people to vote. The other aspect is more pernicious and more, more, more subtle. They're going to make it easier to overturn legitimate election results. Mm-hmm. So right now, they are putting in place secretaries of state who are friendly to Republican and conservative causes. They are putting in place rules where um, easy, they're, they're taking away local power from local election boards and centralizing it in the Capitol, which are Republican run. And it's gonna be easier not to certify election results and say, for whatever reason, that these elections aren't valid, we need to do a rebound or we need to overturn it. And if you did that in just a handful of states in the 2020 election, we would have had a different And they're going to make that easier. So I'm trying to ring the bell and sound. So all that to say, if if you're a Christian looking to get involved in like, like real world present justice matters, uh, look at voting. Look at your own state and see what laws or, or what bills are on the table, what laws are being passed. Obviously, you want to call your representatives and whatnot, but you also probably want to support organizations like Black Voters Matter and um, Fair Fight. Um, some of them are, are sort of state-based and, and local, but they may have um, listings on the website of, of places close to you. But um, find a way, figure it out. Let us know what you're doing. But um, we got a lot of work to do both within the church and beyond. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully the church can be... Um... A, a catalyst for justice rather than an obstacle to it. Thank you. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Yes. Put, yeah. Simply put, but powerfully put. Right. Jamar, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And um, thank you so much for the conversation. This has been a great conversation. Let's keep up. And uh, if you don't, <laughs> if your listeners aren't following you on Twitter, they're missing out. <laughs> All right. All right, and follow Jamar, too. For uh... <laughs> Take care. All right, you too.